I have an opening story for you that may help you win a trivia contest someday. Just know that. Because someday you may hear someone say, who was Roy Regals? Roy Regals was a football player who played for the University of California in 1929. Roy Regals and his University of California Bears were in the Rose Bowl, the granddaddy of them all. The Rose Bowl by that time was already 27 years old. And they were playing Georgia Tech on January 1st, 1929. Roy Regals uh, was, was on the line. He played nose tackle for defense and then would go the other way and play center for offense. Nose tackles and centers don't get a lot of glory in football. It's the halfbacks, the quarterbacks, the wide receivers, but the, the guys in the line, the guys in the trenches, they get a lot of glory from their teammates. Quarterbacks love their, their offensive line. But Roy Riggles here was playing defense. Georgia Tech's player, halfback, Jack Thomason, was headed toward a sideline run, a sweep. Jo Roy Riggles took out after him. He was pursuing the play. Thomason fumbles the ball. The game is at a 0-0 tie in the first half. Thomason fumbles the ball. Regal scoops up the ball. And he gets bumped. He gets hit. He gets turned. He keeps his feet. He gets spun around. He looks and there's daylight. 60 yards to pay dirt. And he starts rumbling, stumbling, bumbling along. And he is moving. Nobody's near. Finally, one of his players catches up to him. He tries to grab a hold of him. Roy, you're going the wrong way. Riggles pushes him out of the way. Get out of my way. This is my touchdown. That slows him down enough to three Georgia Tech players catch up with him. And they tackle him on the one-yard line, 99 yards away from his touchdown. Roy was eventually dubbed Roy Wrong Way Regals. So Cal has the football on the one-yard line, on their own one-yard line. Three plays later, they can't advance the ball. Finally, they just drop back and they take a safety. Two points. The game ended. And the score was Cal 7. Georgia Tech, eight. Georgia Tech won by one point because Roy ran the wrong way. Sometimes like Roy Regals, you and I can pursue something, something that's actually wrong thinking, but we pursue it with strength and with vigor and with determination. And sometimes we do that with God. Sometimes we develop a picture of God, a mental image of God, that's really not the full picture of who He is. And yet we hold on to that with a lot of energy. In fact, in a book written over 60 years ago by a man by the name of A.W. Tozer, entitled, Knowledge of the Holy, the Attributes of God, Their Meaning in Christian Life, A.W. Tozer penned a line that is as relevant today as it was when he wrote it over 60 years ago. The line is this. 
we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. We each have in our minds an image of who we believe God to be. And that image informs our responses. That image informs our beliefs. And if we are wise, we stay open to having that image shaped and molded as we grow and understand more about God, understand more about the Word of God, and experience the person of God. But sometimes, sometimes we get so fixated on our image of God and on the direction that it is taking us that we fail to stop and see a bigger picture. Sometimes, if we're not careful, we can get turned around and begin to head in a wrong direction. I have had conversations with people over the years, people that are convinced that they have a sound picture of God. I remember once talking to a neighbor when we lived in that trailer park back in Indiana and went down was talking to a neighbor about something and he said to me, you know what? I believe the God in the Old Testament is a God of anger, but the God of the New Testament is a God of love. I said, well, you know, that's not the whole picture. And I showed him samples in the Old Testament where God says, I'm the Lord, a God of love, loving generation to generation. And I showed him that. And he was stuck in that belief. Nothing I could say could stop him from going in a way that was the wrong way. I have been told by many people, I believe when I stand before the pearly gates that there's a giant scale. And God, or St. Peter, whoever's there at the time, is going to take all my good deeds and put them on this side of the scale. And all my bad deeds on this side of the scale, and as long as my good deeds outweigh the bad, I'm in. There is nothing in the Bible that says that. Nothing in the Bible. And, and you, you know, there are times you just can't refute that. I have heard people say, trying to comfort someone at the loss of a child in their grief, a very wrong word picture of God. I, I heard this come from someone I couldn't believe I was hearing it. In heaven, there's a rose garden. And God needed a flower for his rose garden. And so he took your little girl. I th what? How could you say that? I've been told, and I hear this a lot these days, a loving God just wants his children to be happy. And what that is usually referring to is whatever makes me happy, God wants me to do. Well, there are some things that might make me happy that aren't really godly. All wrong thinking about God, yet all sincerely maintained with some personal conviction. So I ask you this morning before we dive into the book of Job a little bit, What's your mental image of God? Who do you think God is? How do you describe God? This morning, we are going to take a journey. This will be a very difficult pass, uh, sermon because it, it, it's covering 21 chapters. 
21 chapters. So uh, I will give you references. I will encourage you to write them down because I want to take a brief journey through the speeches of Job's three friends. Remember, we have Job. He's sitting on the ash heap. He's got sores all over his body. He's got pain. He's in agony. He's just, and they sit there together for seven days uttering silence. Last week we saw in Job 3 that that Job just laments and he just kind of pours out his pain and his heartache and his struggle and all. And that opens the door for his friends to believe that they can now speak. And so what you find in chapters 4 through 25 is Job's three friends speaking. And we have three cycles of speeches. One of the men will speak, Job will respond. The second one, Job will respond. The third one, Job will respond. And then we rinse and repeat. The third cycle, only two of the three friends speak and Job responds. Now, these men are considered wise men of the day. They are sages. They come from a variety of areas. They they kind of got together and came to Job. They have a relationship with Job. They know him. They know his reputation. They know who he is. And they they speak from oldest to youngest is the way that we probably believe it happens. Eliphaz is the oldest. He will go first. After Job responds, then Bildad will speak. After Job responds, then Zophar will speak. But we have, remember, we have a lot of advantages as we look at the book of Job. One, we see the first two chapters and we are what my English teacher used to call third-person omnipresent. We aren't in the story, but we get to see all the things that happen. And we have the advantage of knowing that in chapter 42, God says, I'm angry with you, Eliphaz, because you and your friends did not speak what was right about me. So we can, with assurance, know that looking at their speeches, we are going to find wrong thinking about God. What I am going to do is I am going to walk you through three different ways that they think wrongly about God and show you examples. And then at the very end, we're going to look at some correctives. How do we correct wrong thinking about God? So here's here's the first thing that I want you to be aware of. It kind of goes back to that Rose Garden illustration. Wrong thinking about God is sometimes mixed in with good words. Reading the speeches of Job's three friends, it really requires a slow read. You can't speed read those speeches, mainly because they are all poetic in nature. So they don't read like prose. There's a lot of poetry, there's a lot of imagery, there's a lot of word pictures. And at first blush, his friends say some good and right things about God. Let me give you some examples. In his first speech, Eliphaz asks two questions that really point to the character of God. In in Job chapter 4, verse 17, he says this, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? Those are good questions. Those point to the 
righteousness and purity of God? Good questions. Good thought-provoking questions. A few chapters later, in chapter 8 and verse 3, Bildad appeals to God's justice when he asked, Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Wow. The, the understood answer is absolutely not. God does not pervert justice. He does not pervert what is right. So far speaks about the greatness of God and his vast nature. In chapter 11, verses 7 through 9, we read this. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Wow. What a great description of God. These are good questions. They lead to good and sound conclusions about God. The obvious answers are no, there's nobody more righteous than God. No one's more pure than God. God doesn't pervert justice. We can't fully fathom the greatness of God. We would all agree with those. And yet, these sentiments are repeated in various ways throughout the next speeches, and they're very limited. You see, the problem with these three sentiments is that is the sum total of their view of God. They see God in a very limited and myopic way. They only see God as just in their definition of justice. They only see God as unknowable. They only see God as pure in the sense that he's untouchable. There is no mention of his forgiveness. There is no mention of God being a God of love. There is no mention of God being a God of compassion. In their thinking, God is cold, unfeeling. He's a cold, unfeeling judge who exacts justice and punishes any and all wrongdoing. Now, where does that come from? Well, that brings us to our second point. Wrong thinking about God stems from faulty presuppositions. That's a big word. A presupposition is simply a belief that's already assumed to be true. As we have stated several times already in this study, there was an assumed theology that prevailed during the time in which this book was written. Let me give you a summary of it. One, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and fully just. Two, in his justice, God punishes bad behavior, sin, and rewards good behavior. Therefore, if something bad has come into your life, it is because you have sinned and God is punishing you. Conversely, if there are good things happening in your life, it's because you are doing God and God is rewarding you. The only way to correct bad things coming into your life is to be honest with God about your sin, and then he will just stop all the bad stuff. Now that is very cut and dry and simple. That's the, that is the 
theology, as it were, that the accuser uses to come before God and says, Job just worships you because you give him stuff. Take it all away. He'll curse you and die. So these men are ultimately saying to Job, if I were to summarize all of those 21 chapters, it's simply this, Job, you have done something very, very bad. And you have not come clean to God. You are being severely punished. So if you simply would just stop all this sniveling, oh, I hurt, oh, I've got sores all over my body, oh, everything's been taken away. You stop all your sniveling, Job, and just come clean with God and admit to him and to us where you have failed, it's all going to go away. Now remember, we know the whole story. We know that God says, my servant Job, you know, he says, have you seen my servant Job? He's four things. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He shuns evil. So we know the character of Job. They're assuming that Job has done something awful that he's been able to hide and to bury. Because remember, he was wealthy. He had people just come clean. In fact, let me show you some examples. Remember I read uh, Bill Dad's speech where he talks about, does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Here's the very next sentence after that. It's in chapter 8, verse 4. When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Now, remember chapter 1, Job's children, they got along. They liked each other. They hung out together. At the son's birthdays, they would have everybody over and have a birthday party. And they were at a birthday party, all ten of his children, at one of his son's houses. After Job had offered a sacrifice to God to forgive if his children did anything wrong, the house is wiped out. Bildad is saying, they got what they deserve, Job. I'm your comforter. I'm your encourager. I'm coming here to walk with you in your grief. Your kids died because God's punishing them of their sin. Why? Because God only allows bad things to come to bad people. And if your kids were good people, this wouldn't have happened. Wrong thinking about God. These men knew Job. They knew how he exercised his faith. The presumption is, no matter what you do, God judges sin harshly. God is heartless. He's just a cold judge. Zophar asserts that one can actually make themselves right before God. Listen to his words in chapter 11, verses 13 to 15. If you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, Then free of fault, you will lift up your face and you will stand firm without fear. Do you get what's the assumption under that? Job, you're a sinner. You've got sin in your hand. And all you have to do is just make it right. Devote your heart to God. Eliphaz, in in one of his uh, rebukes, is scathing. And in fact, if you read Job 4 through 25, and you read the speeches that go through there, you'll find that these guys just continue to turn up the heat on Job all the way along. In in chapter 15, 
verse 20, Eliphaz asserts that God just torments wicked people throughout their lives. And in that same chapter, chapter 15, in verses 21 to 30, he describes some of the torment that are parts of the description. And when you read it, you realize he is pointing at specific things that have come into Job's life. For instance, he talks about God sends attacking marauders, verse 21. He talks about houses crumbling, verse 28. He talks about loss of wealth, verse 29. He talks about flame and fire destroying property and belongings in verses 30 and 34. All of those things happened. Job lost his wealth. Fire from sky burned up some of his flocks. The kid's house was destroyed by a windstorm. There were marauders that took others of his flock. And it's the idea that, Job, you are a sinner. It doesn't matter in their mind, what Job's reputation was, bad things only happen to bad people. When you and I presuppose to know the mind of God, when we believe that God is just out there to zap the wicked, it's very possible that we run the danger of these three men and begin to look at our own circumstances and develop an unholy pride. When I look around at our world, when when you look around at disasters in our world, you look just down the road of wise to the, the tornadoes that just rent through southern Illinois and Kentucky last month, I just hope you don't draw the conclusion that there must have been gross sin in those areas for God to wipe them out. Because if that were the case, Springfield, Illinois shouldn't exist. (laughs) When we read of oppression and suffering of fellow believers in places like China and Myanmar and Indonesia, I hope our first response isn't that they somehow got what they deserve, that God is treating them that way. You see, we have to be very careful how we respond to bad things coming into the lives of people regardless of their standing before God. Because we can get very heartless. We can start to judge and at least in our own minds look at why the misfortune falls on others and not us. Oh, even an offhand comment, well, they got what they deserved. That shouldn't be part of my response. Who am I? Who am I to judge the reasons for another's suffering? We all go through suffering. We all have bad things come into our lives. We all have struggles. And by the way, on the other side of that coin is another faulty presupposition, one that doesn't come up in Job, but one that we have to be aware of. It was, it was actually popularized in, in another book quite a few years ago by a rabbi, uh, a rabbi a, a Harold Kushner, and the book was entitled, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. And, and, and Kushner res- concludes that while God is a good God, God is a weak God. And bad things happen to good people because God is simply incapable of preventing it. That is as far off field as God only judges people 
and only, only lets bad things come into people's life because they've sinned. No, God gave Adam and Eve a choice and they chose to go their own way and that brought into this world brokenness and sin. We live in a broken world. And only through Christ is this world redeemed. And only through Christ, we celebrated His first coming at Christmas, only when He returns will this world be restored. So we are left with a time where we do go through struggles and brokenness. Where does this all come from? Well, a careful read of Job's three friends and their speeches reveals that their foundation of their conclusions was based on their own observations. You know, and, and, and as a result, they, they make these assumptions about God. And, and that actually leads us to a third wrong thinking about God. Wrong thinking about God is based on a faulty authority. Each of these three friends, you and me, we have a basis of authority from which we draw things. Some of us, we've seen a lot in life. We've experienced a lot in life. That gives us a little bit of, of authority. Uh, some of us have done a lot of reading and research. That might give us a little bit of authority. You know, I've taught classes in college and grad school, and, and oftentimes, especially uh, in first-year college students, when I'm reading a paper, I will often write in the paper or type in when it's electronic, What's the source for the assertion that you're making? You know, if I read a sentence that says, all dogs go to heaven. All right, if you don't give me a peer-reviewed source that can prove to me that all dogs go to heaven, then that is just your opinion. And in a, in a research paper, your opinion really doesn't matter. I want facts. What's your source? What's your authority? Throughout his speeches, Eliphaz reveals that his authority, his source, is his personal observation. He begins chapter 4 and verse 8 with, I have observed. In chapter 4, verse 13, he says, I had a dream. And he talks about this weird dream that he had. In chapter 5 and verse 3, I myself have seen. In chapter 15 and verse 17, I have seen. His life experience is his authority on God. It's a faulty authority. <clears throat> Bildad, in chapter 8, draws on his observations of history. Let me read a couple verses in chapter 8 of Job, verses 8 through 10. Ask the former generation and find out what their ancestors learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing. And our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? While still growing and uncut, they wither more quickly than grass. Such is the destiny of all who forget God so perishes the hope of the godless. Job, just look back. Go to the older generations. They're going to tell you, if you forget God, you have no hope. And, and, and while that's true, he's not drawing from anything other than history. Zophar also sees his own understanding as his authority. He says in, verse, in chapter 11, verse 6, 
know this. God has even forgotten some of your sin. Really? Chapter and verse. We serve a God who doesn't forget. We serve a God who says, I remove your sins as far as the east is from the west and remember them no more as in choosing to remember them no more. But Zophar says, Joe, God doesn't pay attention to you. He just, he's forgotten some of your sins. In chapter 20 and verse 3, he, he speaks about his own understanding. He says, I hear a, a rebuke that dishonors me, and my understanding inspires me to reply. Job, I have to reply to you because you've dishonored me, and my understanding is greater than your understanding, so I need to reply. We all need to make sure that what we say about God and what we think about God is based on the sole authority on God, and that is His Word. Everything I think and say about God should, should start with running through the grid of God's Word. So let me share some correctives, very briefly. The first one is kind of a repeat of what I've just said. Check your sources. Check your sources. Observation, nature, history are really good and interesting disciplines, worthy disciplines, but they're not the final authority of truth. I am not the final authority of truth. You know, we, we live in a time frame in our culture where we each want our own truth. We hear so often, be true to yourself. I'm not even sure what that really means, but I hear it a lot. But the fact of the matter is, I am not my own truth. I can create my own truth. I can try to manipulate things the way I want them to be, but there is a source greater than me. You know, my own truth is, I can fly. So after the service, I want you to come out because I am going, I've already got a ladder. I'm going to climb up on the roof of the church, the snowy roof of the church. I'm going to trudge up as high as I can. I'm going to get a good run and I'm going to fly because that's my truth. Well, there's a truth greater than my truth. It's a truth called gravity. And I will fly for about two seconds. And then I will be splat, and you guys, while you're laughing, will have to be calling 911 and not judging me. Check your sources. We need to be people of the Word of God who, like those people that Paul talked about in Acts 17.11, the people from the city of Berea, who said we're more noble than the Thessalonians because they examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I hope you go back to your Bible and say, okay, I want to reflect on what Pastor Scott said. I want to make sure he's preaching truth. Second corrective, develop a balanced view of God. You see, God holds all of his characteristics in perfect balance. God is love. God is good. God is gracious. God is forgiving. God is compassionate. But if I only focus on those characteristics of God, I have a mental image of God 
uh, uh, of some really kind grandpa, who, who, like me, who never really disciplines his grandchildren. He just gives them stuff. It's a skewed view of God. Because God is also holy and just and righteous and sovereign and powerful. And he does judge sin. But if I make that my only view of God, I slip into the error of Job's friends who see God only as this cold, heartless judge that just is out to zap people. God holds everything in perfect balance. And I would submit to you this morning that you see the perfect balance of all the characteristics of God at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus is there satisfying the wrath of God towards sin. He is there because of the righteousness and justice and holiness of God. But he chose to go to the cross because, as John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. So God's love and compassion and grace and mercy and forgiveness and his justice and his righteousness and holiness all come together at the cross. And he did that. He allowed that because of his love for you and me so that he could pay the price for our sins. Develop a balanced view of God. Corrective number three. Develop a balanced view of who you are before God. It's God, the Holy Spirit, whose job it is to convict people of sin. I am not the Holy Spirit in anyone's life. I may be used of God to help correct, help guide, help shape, but I am not the one who convicts you of sin. That's the Holy Spirit. God is a God of grace. I need to be a person of grace. God is a holy God. I need to be a person who strives by His power in me to be holy. Holy doesn't mean to be perfect. Holy means to be set apart, to be different. God is a God who forgives and restores. I need to be a person who learns to forgive. God loves me. He loves me unconditionally, and He expects me, actually He commands me to love my neighbor as myself. God is a God of justice, and He calls me to be a person of justice. And what that looks like in the Bible is that God says, I care for the most vulnerable. And in the Old Testament, He defines that as the widow and the orphan and the stranger. And I need to be a person who follows God's example and do my part to care for the most vulnerable in the culture where I live. God is a God of compassion, and I need to be a person of compassion. And when you look at the characteristics of God, how do they flow out of your life? Corrective number four. Remember that I, too, am a sinner saved by grace. I have failed. You have failed. I have sinned. You have sinned. I've let people down. You've let people down. We're all sinners. 
And those who put their faith in God are sinners saved by grace. It's so easy to get excited about something. To get so excited and so set in a direction that like Roy Regals on January 1, 1929, we end up running hard the wrong way. I think if we learn anything from Job's three friends in this brief survey today, it's simply this. Slow down. Think about what you're observing. Think about what you believe. Check your sources and look to what you know to be true about God first based on your understanding of his word. When it was all said and done, Job's friends' words did not encourage. They didn't comfort. They didn't even really instruct Job. In a sense, they added to his suffering. I think for all of us, our prayer should be what we already read earlier today from Psalm 19. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in your word you give us these examples of things that aren't right. And I thank you that at the very end of the book of Job, you tell Job to offer a sacrifice for his friends and, and, and you forgive them, even though they spouted on and on wrong stuff about you. You forgave them. What a great reminder of your grace. So Lord, help us to strive to think rightly about you, to learn about you to grow in relationship with you so that we can live in a way that reflects you to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.